So we are going to dive into the minor prophets tonight. Uh, and this, I'll, we're going to split this into two weeks. All of the prophets we've essentially split into two weeks because there's just so much stuff there, right? So uh, that's what we're going to do with the, the minor prophets. We'll get through, I think, the, we'll try and get through Jonah tonight and then the rest next week. So let's pray and then we will dive in. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this time again that we have to gather together and to study your word. And we ask, Spirit of God, that you would give us insight and understanding. Give me uh, understanding and the ability to communicate in a clear way. Help us to um, absorb truths of your word that we might again know you and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do we call these the minor prophets? <laughs> okay, <laughs> Captain Obvious. They're not as big, right? That's just because uh, uh, <laughs> they're not major. They sing in a minor key. They're sad. Yeah, they are for the most part. They're, but we could call them all kind of minor prophets, right? Some are just long minor songs, right? No, I mean we we have typically. Uh, ascribe to this the, the term the minor prophets just because it's a series of smaller prophecies, right? Uh, they weren't smaller prophets, they just wrote smaller books. But really, we call this the 12, is what I call it, or not I. Other scholars have just called this the 12, the book of the 12, because it's a collection of 12 prophets uh, combined together. And that's the first thing we want to talk about, is that really this is actually just one book. The 12 minor prophets, as we call them, or the... Uh, the t- book of the Twelve. It's really one one book. Um, when, Paul House talks about this, that when we combine these twelve books together, which really, once you do that, it's about the same size as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. He says this, when you do this, they display many of the same literary and theological features as do their larger predecessors, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So that is true. As we read through it, we, it sounds, if you read it as one thing, just like you're reading Isaiah or Jeremiah, but from different perspectives, different time frames, and things like that. Okay? The thing that's interesting, though, about the Twelve is, being one book, it shows us something larger than the other prophets could because it has such a larger uh, time span that it's covering, right? Nearly 300 years these prophets prophets are covering, okay? So here, uh, Paul House again said, the time span allows the text to include the fulfillment of pledges made decades earlier, whether those pledges were of divine judgment or blessing. As great as the previous books are, they do not have the scope both to offer and describe the completion of Yahweh's long-term threats and positive promises. So if you think like Isaiah makes a promise or a, or a prophecy about something, but he doesn't see that necessarily come to fruition in his life or in, the, in his book. Well, in the, the minor prophets, we do, right? So the threats of exile and judgment actually come to pass, and then we see the fulfillment of restoration come to pass in this same book as well. So that's something that makes them unique. The order of the books we'll talk about for, for a minute here, and it's not the most significant detail, but there are some interesting things that, that come out of it. One proposal I was reading talks about, there's a, you could see a, po- a potential link in the last verse of, say, Hosea with the first verse of Joel, right? Hosea, no, Amos. <laughs> I just, I got the order wrong. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jodomica, right? So there's, supposed to, there's some literary connections possibly between the last verse of the first book and the first verse of the second uh, but that, that, that also breaks down. However, I think the more interesting uh, 
proposal put forward by Stephen Dempster in his Dominion and Dynasty book said this. He said, The audience of the prophets alternates between the northern and southern kingdoms for the first six prophets. God spoke to one and then to the other until the northern kingdom was decimated. Thus, there was an interest in communicating to the whole nation the entire people of God. Then three prophets spoke to the southern kingdom until it was finally destroyed. Finally, the three post-exilic prophets spoke to a restored Judah. So this alternating uh, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then finally to the post-exilic audience, I think is a more interesting uh, understanding of how the books are ordered. The other thing we want to talk about is that the 12 books, the 12 prophets in relationship to the exile. Okay, now, what was the exile? They're exiled to Babylon. Why, why, was the, why was Israel exiled from the land? Because of their sin. They broke the covenant. And how long was the exile for? 70 years, right? Okay. And then remember the other significant moment was the division of the kingdom. So the first, the northern kingdom, Israel, the 10 tribes went into exile in 721. And then ultimately the Judah was finally, uh, the first captivity happened, I believe in 605, which would have been the exile of Daniel and all of his friends. And the final one was in 586 BC. And that's when Judah the two southern kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin, were finally removed from the land. So the exile, remember, there are major mile markers in Israel's history. So you have things like the Abrahamic covenant, where God makes that covenant promise to Abraham, essentially establishing the nation of Israel. You have the exodus, which is super critical because that defines the nation uh, as a nation, and that's also where God gives them the law at Sinai. Remember, they're entering into Canaan is a significant uh, moment because that's where the nation takes hold of the land that God has promised. And then we have the establishment of the Davidic monarchy, right? That's super critical because as we've seen in the prophets, all the hopes of the nation of Israel are really bound up in that Davidic covenant made, right? The promise to have a king forever on the throne after the line of David. And then the other big things uh, was the division of the kingdom under Rehoboam, right? Where he... uh, rejected the wise counsel, split the kingdom in half, and then the, the other significant moments are these exiles, the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the prophets are divided around these exiles, okay? So they happen in, in uh, these two ways. You have the pre-exilic prophets. So these are all prophets who are prophesying before the final exile in 586 BC. So you have Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah. They're all pre-exile. So the majority of the, the prophets that we've, we've looked at. And you have that chart in there, which also kind of shows the order, right, and the time frames and the, the, uh, the audience of each of the prophet as well as the world power at that time. Okay, so those are, most of our prophets are pre-exile. Then we have what I would call prophets to the exile, which would be Ezekiel, because you remember Ezekiel was in Babylon when he received his visions. And then the other one that I would include in that category that we don't really consider a prophecy work would be Daniel, but he had prophetic work, right, in, in receiving visions and interpreting dreams and things like that. Then we have the three post-exilic prophets. So these are all taking place after the Jews have returned to the land. So what we'll see when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah is that Cyrus decrees for the people to go back into the land. This happens in 5. 
538 to 535 BC. And so then these prophets are all existing after that time. Micah is going to be the last one in the 400s, I believe it is, right? And so these, these prophets are all ministering to the Jews who are back in the land. So you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three prophets of, of the 12, okay? Does that make sense so far where we're going, tracking with what I'm saying? Cool. All right, then let's talk about the audience. Um, all prophets had an audience. So whether they're a writing prophet, um, like the ones we're going to read, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they had writing ones, or prophets. Remember, like some of the prophets were speaking only, uh, Elisha and Elijah. We don't have a book of Elijah or a book of Elisha, but they had an audience to whom they were speaking. And then they all spoke to either Judah or Israel, but usually the prophet dealt with one of the two nations, either Judah or Israel. So the prophets that we see to the northern kingdom, to Israel, are Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. Now, also, you would add in there Elijah and Elisha. Remember, uh, they're fleeing from, uh, oh, the name escapes me now. Who was the bad king? Ahab, right? Ahab was, was in, their, in their time frame. So Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, we would consider prophets to Israel. And then the prophets to, to Judah, outside of the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we would have Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. Okay, we would see those all as prophets to Judah. Then what we're going to see, some of the other prophets that we'll look at, their prophecies are focused specifically on other nations. So their context might have been either Judah or Israel, but their prophecy concerns another nation. So uh, the most familiar one would be Jonah, right? Because he doesn't actually prophesy to uh, Israel, but he goes to Assyria, to Nineveh, and prophesies, uh, delivers a message of hope to them. Uh, Obadiah is the other one, as we'll see. He goes to Edom, and then Nahum. He goes to Assyria as well, and Nineveh after Jonah, and delivers a message of judgment. Okay. Then let's talk about the overall message of the 12, and it's really this, that these 12 prophets together, much like Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, contain themes of God's judgment for sin, specifically Israel's covenant breaking, they see a future day of judgment known as the day of the Lord, and they also see a glorious future where God's presence dwells in the midst of his people. So one of the things, like as we're working our way through the prophets, we're going to see these repeated themes. We're going to see repeated imagery. Uh, so uh, repeated concepts that are just used over and over. So as you're reading through this, you'll think like, boy, I think I remember reading something like that in Isaiah or in Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Okay, so these, there are, there are, they're bringing out the same things, but often in different ways to different people at different times, okay? Then finally, I, the way that we're going to work through these is a little bit more thematically. The last couple times, I've tried to walk us through a little bit more and just saying like, all right, this passage to this passage to this passage. We're not going to do that as much. We're gonna, I've got a, a broad outline, which is in your, your handouts, and then we'll just kind of touch on some main themes that we see within each of those sections, okay? So let's start with Hosea, and then we will work from there. So Hosea chapter 1, what we know about Hosea was, again, he was a prophet to Israel before they were exiled by the Assyrians. So he's pretty early in the, in the, the scheme of things. He is the last prophet Israel had before they were exiled, and that happens in 2 Kings chapter 17. You can go read about that. 
Jeroboam II was the king under, under his reign. His ministry is approximately 760 to 730. Okay, so the northern kingdom was exiled in 721. So it kind of gives you an idea of when, when he was, was ministering. A contemporary of his would have been Isaiah. Isaiah would have been in the southern kingdom. He's in the northern kingdom. Okay? So chapters 1 through 3, I've entitled Yahweh's Indictment of Israel the Whore and Yahweh's Mercy. Okay? Hosea has a message that's not just in word, but it's in deed. Remember how many of the prophets, uh, their lives were images of, of God's judgment? Ezekiel laying on his side. Uh, Isaiah walking naked, uh, Jeremiah uh, weeping, or, and uh, let's see, who is it? Ezekiel's wife dying and being told not to lament or grieve. So their lives were kind of symbols of what God was doing. So Hosea, his life pictured the Lord's persistent love for his covenant people, and that's because he was instructed to go and marry a prostitute. So you see that in chapter 1, verse 3. He goes and marries Gomer. This is his commission from the Lord. And this leads to the Lord's assessment and judgment, we see in verse 3, that the land commits great whoredom. Okay, they're spiritual adulterers. So, in verse 4, the Lord pronounces judgment on Israel. But then notice in verse 7, the Lord's hope for, uh, that he pronounces for the nation of Judah, right? Where, so, and and, and he's, he's describing the kind of judgment that's going to fall upon the nation and how the Lord is going to treat them in the naming of his children, right? So, you know, you're going to have a verse 4, I will punish the house of Jehu, I'll put an end to the kingdom, call the name of that child Jezreel for that reason, right? So even the names of his children are describing what the Lord is going to do. Verse 7, though, there is hope for the house of Judah. I will have mercy on the house of Judah and save them by the Lord save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And ultimately, we're going to see this happen, right, as they come back into the land after the 70 years of exile is fulfilled, okay? Um, So Homer's children, three of them Jezreel, which looked forward to the destruction of the house of Israel, Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy, because the Lord is not going to show mercy to them, and then lastly, Lo Ami, lo ami, which means not my people, right? These are all uh, how the Lord views them. What we see in chapter three is that Hosea's wife, who is a prostitute, leaves him and goes back to other lovers. And again, that's picturing exactly what Israel did, right? They left the Lord, went through to other lovers. But in chapter three, the Lord instructs Hosea, go and buy your wife back, okay? So Hosea's life and relationship with his wife pictured the Lord's relationship with Israel. So you see that in chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. And then the other thing, even is we're going to see the Lord's indictment uh, against the land. There is a a promise of restoration that happens at the end of chapter 2. And then chapter 3 seems to, to focus on a time period that takes place before that restoration. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So here it's picturing, right, that, that though Israel is playing the whore, the Lord loves them, right? And, and so he's saying, go back and buy her back just even though she's running away, just like the Lord loves, loves Israel. And then, as we're going to see, like chapter 4 and on, it's going to detail what Israel's spiritual adultery looks like, 
All their sins are going to be named. And then verse 5, look at chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So if, if you see that there's this in-between time, so you have verse, verse 3, this is what Israel is, or verse 1, Israel is running away, they're playing the whore. Hosea, go after your wife, just like the Lord is going to go after your wife. And verse 5 says, they will return. Well, all the intervening time period in between there is what's described in chapter 4 to the end of the book. Does that make sense? So it kind of gives you an outline of what is going to happen to the nation of Israel. Okay, So chapters 1 through 3, focusing on Yahweh's indictment of Israel, but it's also speaking of the mercy he will show to them and his restoration. Okay, Chapters 4 through 7, we see Israel's sin, described in chapter 4, is not hidden from the Lord. We see that in chapter 5. And yet the nation still refuses to repent. We see that in chapters 6 and 7. So look at like chapter 4, verse 1. The, through Hosea, we see the Lord indicting Israel. So he says this, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They are swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Okay, so again, we see when Israel abandons the Lord, ethical issues arise within the people. And then look at chapter 5 and verse 11. We see that um, the Lord is, is, is sure to remind the nation that the problems they're about to face, the judgment they're going to experience, is because they've forsaken his covenant. So look at uh, uh, 5.11, Ephraim is oppressed crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. Remember, Ephraim is the, the, a term that is often used to describe the whole of the nation, or the, the northern kingdom, because Ephraim was the, the territory in which the capital of Samaria was located. That phrase, though, always strikes me, determined to go after filth, right? It's a, a pretty telling statement. So the Lord is, is describing the nature of the people. Then we get to chapter 8, and I have entitled it this, Israel is a covenant-breaking, law-forsaking, other-nation-chasing people. So look at verses 5 and 6. We see their idolatry. Israel's, uh, do you remember what the, the main idol worship was that took place in Israel, the first one that they fell into? Uh, before Baal. It was the golden calves, right? Remember the, the Jeroboam the first was made king, and his concern was that the, the people would go down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and therefore they'd start following the king in Jerusalem, so he set up the golden calves, right? And that was a snare to Israel for their entire history. So look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord says, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. So there he's speaking about these golden calves. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. All right? So he's, he's saying, this thing you're worshiping, I'm going to destroy it. Right? You made it. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't talk about it much last time, but there's that passage in Isaiah you know, that talks about the man that, that makes an idol. He goes and cuts a tree. He crafts it. One half he cuts and makes a god and falls down to worship it. The other he burns over a fire and makes his food, right? It's just showing the, the stupidity and the futility of idolatry. 
Look at verses 12 through 14, Israel's forsaking the law of God. He says, were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. So the idolatry, their rejection of the Lord has so confounded them, they'd hear the word of God and they're like, this is weird, this is strange. Then he goes on to say, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Then in chapters 9 through 10, we see the days of punishment have come. In chapters 9, the Lord will discipline, therefore, when he pleases. So look at chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Here we see a call to repent from Hosea. So the Lord says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Okay, So here, again, in all the prophets, the Lord is, is not only he's warning them of the destruction to come, but he's also saying, if you repent and turn, there's salvation. Right? There's hope for restoration. Then we get to chapters 11 through 14, the last chapters, and I've called these Yahweh who formed Israel. We see that in chapter 11. Is their only hope and judgment, which is described in chapters 12 through 13. Therefore, in chapter 14, they should return to him. So look at chapter 11, verse 1. Um, it says, when Israel, here the Lord is reminding the nation of his love. And you see this all the way through 11, 1 through 12, 1. <clears throat> but it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then get down to verse 8 says where the Lord is saying, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So here, you remember we, when we first got into the prophets, we said that the prophets are, are, are showing us the heart of God, right? So here you see that. Here's a, a father's tender compassion towards a wayward child that wants to see his child return. So how can my compassion, my compassion grows warm and tender. My heart recoils within me. These are ways the Lord feels about his children and he wants them to return, okay? So that is the book of Hosea. It is the Lord's covenant love for his people who uh, are rebellious and adulterous. Questions? All right, let's go to Joel. Joel, the theme is really the day of the Lord. Okay, Joel was uh, a prophet to Judah in the southern kingdom. Um, he is ministering right towards the end of the nation of, of Judah. So he's about 100 years after Hosea, okay, so around 600 uh, B.C. He was ministering during the reign of Jehoiachin. Now you remember Jehoiachin is the king that was taken from Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, and ultimately in exile is given a good name and is given a place of the, the kingdom. And Jehoiachin is, is essential to, to, for us to understand because through his uh, exaltation in exile, the line of David is not dead, 
right? There's, there's still hope there, okay? So the, he's uh, ministering around the time of Jehoiachin, and his main message has to do with the great and terrible day of the Lord. Sixteen times the day of the Lord is discussed in the Old Testament uh, or referenced specifically, and it's always a day of intense judgment, right? That the, the Lord's wrath, his fury is poured out. Um, it is often described, it's a future day of natural disaster, supernatural catastrophe, and military invasions. And through this, the Lord cleanses his people and cleanses the earth. So sometimes we have to understand the day of the Lord is described uh, like the, the Babylonians coming against Jerusalem and destroying the city. But then there's also a, a future day of the Lord, which we have not yet experienced coming to pass. Okay, So there's multiple times or ways that it is, that is used. Okay. So chapter 1 through 2.17 is the coming day of the Lord. You see, uh, what Joel is doing is he's using a contemporary event. So he talks about um, like chapter 1, uh, verse 4. It talks about a locust plague. So evidently a plague of locusts had come upon the land and caused some severe destruction. And so Joel is using this to uh, describe what the future day of the Lord is going to be like. Uh, so if you think what a, a swarm of locusts, it, has anybody ever seen a swarm of locusts? Oh, the clo- closest thing we have are those crickets, right? The black crickets that come. Thankfully, they don't chew everything, but they're awful and they're everywhere. So imagine that times like a bajillion, right? And they eat everything so that nothing good is left. Uh, anyway, so look at verses 15 and 16. He says, Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near, and his destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? Okay, so he's, he's describing that using this contemporary event of a locust uh, invasion to describe this future coming day of the Lord. Look down at chapter 2 and verse 1. Joel's job was to declare the imminence of this day, right? To tell the people as if it is to happen at any moment. We, we think about the same imminence in the sense of the return of Christ, right? That we're to be living as if it could be here at any moment, okay? So chapter two, verse one, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. So he's declaring its imminence. Then look at verses 12 through 17, and we see that the day of the Lord can be averted through repentance. So here again, this call to turn, verses 12 through 13, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments, right? Because they would do that outwardly, but he wants an internal change. Uh, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster." It's interesting, notice where he says, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember, huh? That's Peter, but I'm also thinking of uh, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, right? And he said, he declares his name. That's what he's declaring. I'm gracious and merciful, uh, steadfast love, will not forgive the iniquity, uh, so on and so forth. I should commit it to better memory so I don't butcher it like that, okay? But we see here that this coming day of the Lord, but yet there is, again, an opportunity uh, for repentance. The second half of chapter 2 deals with the Lord's pity on his people. And so we notice in chapter 2, starting in verse 18, look at that. It says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And, and what it goes on to describe here is a, 
a cosmic renewal or restoration, much like we see in Isaiah chapter 60 and on, right? That the earth will be restored. It'll be like Eden. That same language is, is uh, used. Like verses 26 and 27, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never, be put to, be, never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So Right, speaking of that day when, when the glory of the Lord is on the earth and all things are restored to as they, they should be, okay? Also, notice chapter 2, verse 28, uh, which, uh, so it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. Where is that referenced in the New Testament? Acts, right, Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, right? Because Peter's saying, hey, what the prophet Joel prophesied about, it's coming to pass. So what this means then is that this restoration, the new creation, comes through Christ, right? We understand that it's not fully fulfilled, but we understand that it is partially here and that, that the next phase is that he comes back and establishes all things. So that's kind of the, if, if we understand how the, the prophetic language is happening here, what happens in verse 28 actually come, even though it's listed after all this new creation language, that happens first, right? So that's what brings about the new creation. Finally, chapter 3 is the Lord's final judgment of the nations. So look at verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Then the last four verses are Judah's future forever habitation, so he's going to deal with them. But then notice verse 20, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. So again, there's this future hope for the nation of Israel, and it's all found in the coming of Christ. Okay, that's Joel. Then let's get to Amos. Any questions on Joel? All right, Amos, titled it, The Lord Roars Against Sin. So Amos, we're going, if we're going Hosea 7, what did we, 760 to 730, Joel in the 600s, Amos, we're going back in time, okay? So we're going back into the 700s, around 760, so a contemporary of Hosea, and he's also a prophet to the, to the northern kingdom of Israel. The thing that both Hosea and Amos the, the nation of Israel, that northern kingdom, is pretty prosperous at this time. They're doing pretty well. They're, they're fat and happy. Um, and again, Jeroboam the second is king during this time. What we know about Amos, we see in chapter 7, he was a shepherd, right? And the Lord called him from being a shepherd to this prophetic ministry. Um, in the south, again, Hezekiah would be king and Isaiah would be the prophet. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 deal with nations multiplying their sins. So what we see is that Amos instructs us about God's judgment against all sinners. And so not only Judah and Israel is he talking about here, but all the nations are going to be judged for their sin because the Lord hates all sin. So it will fall under his judgment. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. This kind of sets the stage where it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Okay, So he's picturing, Amos is describing for us the Lord's judgment like a roaring lion. So James, James Hamilton says, The roaring of the lion points to Yahweh's zeal for his holiness. 
right? So he is roaring against the sin of Israel and the nations. And what we see is that when the Lord roars from Zion, uh, notice even how it describes it, like the, the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers, right? It brings judgment and destruction, right? When the Lord brings his wrath against sin. The other thing that you'll notice in chapter one and two is these um, phrases like in verse three, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. See the same thing in chapter, or in verse six, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. So this is used, what, like six times in chapter one and chapter two. And what this is, it's a poetic expression designed to convey the multiplying of sins. Right, so it's like the, the nations have continued to sin. And think about other places in the prophets where, it, where it's described as like the sins have come up against the Lord. So it's like, again, their time is fulfilled. Uh, you remember even in, in, um, when the Lord made his covenant promise to Abraham, he said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled or completed. Right, That's why Israel was gonna be in bondage for 400 years. So it's like there's this point where they've sinned to such a point that it is filled up, it comes up to the Lord, and it is time for him to execute his judgment. So that's what's happening, what's being described here. Uh, chapter three and four, uh, the Lord's indictment in chapter three and judgment that has already taken place but has not produced repentance in chapter 4. So we see in, in 3, 1, and 2 that the Lord has the right to bring uh, this indictment against them and because he has linked himself covenantly, covenantally to this nation. Okay, So verses 1 and 2, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Understand that when, when the Lord is looking in judgment, he's looking at the history of the nation. Remember other times he said, from the day that I brought you up, you've been rebellious against me, right? So this is, this is a thousands of years at this point, right? Then he says, you only have I known, and I think he's there speaking about, you only have I known covenantally, right? That I've given to you my law of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. And then as he moves into chapter four, he's denouncing the social injustices of the nation. So when we talk about social justice, the Bible talks about true social justice. Verse one, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink, right? That phrase, cows of Bashan, is not a, uh, let's just say it's derogatory, right? That's not a way that you would respectfully address another lady, okay? But there's social injustices that are happening amongst the nation. So then you see in verse six, the Lord has provided for them, but he's already brought judgment in verses seven and eight that he has withheld rain. Verses nine and 10, he has struck them with pestilence. Verse 10, it also talks about how he has overthrown them and he's done all of this to bring them back. But then he says, uh, you have not yet returned to the Lord. Okay, so again, in the, the life of the nation, if, if you know, the Lord said, or oh, I think it's in Solomon's prayer, right? Where Solomon is praying and he says, if the people sin and you dry up the, the heavens so that it does not rain. If they turn and they repent, hear their, their cry from this place. So here, the Lord has brought judgment in the sense of drought and pestilence and things like that. And the whole point was that it was to induce the people to repentance, but they've not repented. So he's saying, this is what I've done. You've not turned to me. Then we get to chapter five, and we see that Yahweh sees Israel's sin. 
So seek the Lord and do justice and righteousness. So look at verse 12. He says, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Uh, Ezekiel brought this out, right? That the, the people thought that the Lord did not see them. They thought he had abandoned them, so he didn't see their sin. He's saying, no, I see it. It's evidence, right? And here, here it's seen again in your social interactions. You're afflicting the righteous and taking bribes. Look at verses 21 through 24. The Lord despises their false worship. Okay, they go through the motions. They're offering the sacrifices. They're observing the feasts, but their hearts are far from the Lord. So he says, 21, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your hearts. harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So more than the ritualistic acts of worship, what does the Lord want? Hearts that are right, that actually do righteousness and justice. Then we get to chapter 6 through 9. We see woes and warnings. Woe to those living at ease in luxury, chapter 6, and then chapter 7 through 9 are warning about coming judgment and destruction. So we see like in chapter 7, verses 10 through 7, that the people have rejected the word of the Lord through Amos and will receive God's righteous judgment. So look like at, uh, uh, we see in verse 10, this Amaziah comes and, uh, let's see, where is it? So he reports to Jeroboam, the king, right? The Amos is coming and saying, you're going to die by the sword. And they don't like that prophecy. So in verse 12, Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. So he's like, get out of here. Your message is not popular. Leave, okay? And then you get down to verse 17, and here is what, uh, what Amos says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Right, so they hear the word of the Lord through Amos. They don't like it, and Amos says, all right, here it is. It's done. You're going away into exile. And then the last four verses... uh, Oh, actually, before that, look at chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. Here you see that the Lord will not show favoritism to Israel, right? So just as he's bringing judgment against all the other nations, just because Israel is his covenant people doesn't mean that they escape his wrath, right? In case there is a temptation to think that. But finally, uh, the last four verses, 11 through 15, the book closes on a word of hope. So Yahweh, we see here, will raise up the fallen, and here Amos sees a future day of restoration and glory, right? That the Lord will, will restore. Look at like verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So again, it's tying the hopes of the nation in a future Davidic king. All right, let's go to Obadiah. Yes. Mm-hmm. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through yep. the land, not a famine of food or thirst mm. or water, but a famine of hearing the words yeah. of the Lord. That really yeah. 
That's really good. Well, and that connects too with what happened in chapter seven, right? Like here's the word of the Lord and they're like, we don't want to hear it. There's a famine for it. Uh, Yeah, to despise God is to despise his word. There's a lot of other things we could say about that, but but, uh, we can all make the applications ourselves. So thanks for pointing that out. All right, Obadiah. Obadiah is a one-chapter book, right? So easy here. Obadiah's theme is uh, the destruction of Edom. He is a prophet to Judah, although what we have written of him is all directed at Edom. Who were the Edomites? The descendants of Esau, Esau, right? So uh, sometimes you'll see, uh, and I think this was in Isaiah, it's chapter 63. It talks about... uh, uh, the person who is the servant of the Lord coming from Edom and Basra and his blood or his uh, there anyway with Edom and Basra there's often like sometimes red usage language because Esau was red haired right like Aaron so maybe you're an Edomite oh, okay <laughs> anyway uh, Obadiah's theme is the destruction of Edom oh okay <laughs> oh I'm sorry. That's, you're right. I missed that. Anyway, red-haired like Edom. We'll just leave it there. Uh, he's prophesying to Judah around the time of the fall, so around 586 B.C., um, and that is significant, again, because that's when the final deportation happens. The city is destroyed. And so contemporary prophets to Obadiah would be Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Be there in the same time, Jeremiah, of course, in Jerusalem, Ezekiel in Babylon. Um, the main job and message of Obadiah was to, and this is from Jim Hamilton, or no, this is from Stephen Dempster, was to confront an arrogant Edom enriching itself at Judah's expense. Okay, um, Edom's history was that they were a pain in the backside of the nation of Israel. Right? They were constantly, even when they were uh, coming up out of Egypt, right? They run into the Edomites and they would not let them pass. They're just kind of a pain in the neck or the backside of the nation. So we see in verses 1 through 9, their pride, Edom is proud. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Right. So they think we're undefeatable. Right. So the Lord is going to show them. Verses 10 through 14, they've been violent to Israel. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. Right, so here's what Aaron is referencing, their complete decimation the Lord will bring about them. Verses 15 through 21, Edom shall be stubble and inhabited by Jacob. So they're pictured uh, like, you know, just you think about well, like the plague of the locusts or something like that. What's left over after the locusts come through? Just stubble, just little bits of grass sticking out of the ground, nothing substantial, okay? Uh, so verses 17 through 18, we're, we'll see this, this hope of Jacob. Obadiah, though, is tragic, and we'll see this also in Nahum, there's no hope given for the nation uh, who is prophesied against. Edom is not going to have a glorious day of restoration. But what we see, any hope is found in uh, Israel and Judah. They will get triumph. So verse 17 and 18, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. I think it was back in Isaiah, was it in chapter 20, 
Uh, oh, here. No. Chapter uh, 16. So it's speaking about Moab there. And remember what we found was interesting was in this middle of this prophecy of destruction against Moab, there's a promise about the Davidic king. The whole point was that any hope Moab has was to find their salvation in the, the Davidic king in Israel. So I think the same thing is maybe happening here even in Edom, right? Edom, if you want to have any hope, go to Zion, right? Go find your hope in the Davidic king in Yahweh, Okay. Right, with the Moabites, yes. Yep. Yeah. Look at that. It's almost like it was planned. Wow, it's amazing. Hard to believe. All right, let's wrap it up here with Jonah. We might get it done a little bit early even. Look at this. So Jonah, I'm entitled Yahweh's Mercy to Gentile Nations. Jonah is the uh, most well-known, probably, right, of the, uh, of the minor prophets. Um, but it's kind of ironic. Uh, it's not really like a typical prophecy like all the other ones, right? It's a narrative, essentially, um, which again fits with all the other prophetic books. They're largely prophecy with uh, narrative portions in them. So Jonah is our narrative portion of this larger prophetic book. Um, the book is really more about the man Jonah, isn't it? And then about his attempts to flee from the Lord and the task that had been given to him. Uh, Jonah was a prophet in Israel. 1 Kings 14, 23 through 29 references another prophecy that he made. Um, he would have come, so Jonah is really early on, succeeded Elijah and Elisha. Some have summar, or, uh, thought maybe that he was from the school of prophets that's made mention of, of Elijah and Elisha. So maybe he is a student of theirs. He is the earliest of the 12 minor prophets, so his ministry would have been somewhere around 770 B.C., okay? Uh, again, 721 was the, the year that the northern kingdom was destroyed. And Jonah's theme or purpose is this. It is to show us God's grace and mercy extends to Gentile nations as well. Uh, I put this quote in your notes, I think, from James Hamilton that talked about how the nation of Israel or the life of Jonah is kind of a microcosm of the nation of Israel. So I thought his point was really interesting. He said, like the nation of Israel as a whole, Jonah is a somewhat reluctant light to the nations. And he pursued his calling only after the resurrection that followed the death of three days and nights in the belly of the great fish. Commissioned as a kingdom of priests to walk in the way of Yahweh's Torah, Israel walked instead in the way of Canaan. This is the spiritual equivalent of being commanded to go to Nineveh only to flee to Tarshish. Just as Jonah undergoes a death and resurrection of sorts before obeying and going to Nineveh, so the nation will go through a death and resurrection of sorts when they are exiled to the realm of death and then restored to life in the land of Yahweh's presence, at which point Jerusalem will indeed become a light to the nations, shining with the very glory of Yahweh as nations stream to Jerusalem to learn his ways. I thought that was a a very uh, good understanding of Jonah and how it relates to the nation of Israel. And the outline kind of goes something like this as I look at it. Chapter 1, we see the Lord's mercy to Nineveh and Jonah's lack of mercy. Okay, um, This is seen in that the Lord calls Jonah to go to the foreign land. And what's Jonah's response? No, <laughs> I don't want to go. I don't, want, I don't like that you want to show mercy to my enemies. Okay, So chapter 1, verse 2. 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, again, so the idea of their sin has been fulfilled. Of course, Jonah gets on a ship and goes to Tarshish. So that leads us to chapter 2. We see salvation belongs to the Lord. And the thing that, as I was reading through this and looking at this, is that Jonah's prayer is a recognition that the Lord has preserved his life. Right? He's saying, I should have died, you've preserved me. And, and then considering that when he gets spit out of the fish and he goes and he preaches to Nineveh, I think there's an understanding, uh, perhaps a change of heart at a time, right? Um, he has come to the conclusion that the salvation of even his enemies belongs to the Lord, just as the Lord has saved and delivered him. So the Lord will save and deliver them. So we see that in chapter two. Then chapter three, we see that the Lord actually brings salvation to Nineveh, okay? Um, the Assyrians, they were a brutal people, like really a brutal, grotesque nation. Um, and so that could have been partially the reason that he was fearful of wanting to go, right? What are they going to do to me? Um, but look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the Lord brings that salvation, right? And, and this is like one of the few instances we have, right, of repentance, and it's a Gentile nation. So like what a sobering reminder to the nation of Israel, right? And then we see chapter 4, the Lord's mercy to Nineveh and Jonah's contempt for Yahweh's display of mercy. So verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and angry. So in Jonah here, we see the danger of wanting to see your enemies destroyed, right? Jonah would rather seen them destroyed than see the Lord extend mercy to them. Look at verse 2. When they repent, Jonah's despondence, knowing he is despondent, knowing the Lord would forgive them, it makes him mad. So the second half of verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Because all these, the Lord has said this about himself over and over and over. He's like, I knew that if they would repent, you'd actually, that if they'd repent, you'd actually respond that way. So, so he, is, he is upset about this. And look at verse 11. Here we see the Lord's heart, right? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And then the book just stops, right? Which is just such an abrupt ending, huh? It ends with a question, with a question right? Well, we see the, the answer later as we get to Nahum. Um, but it, 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 uh, it ends abruptly. And I think that the, the reason what we see here is that the Lord's granting of repentance to Israel's most hated enemy was a lesson to Israel, right? If the Lord destroyed them, then Israel would have been justified in their minds to continue in their idolatrous and proud ways. But because they repented and responded and the Lord showed mercy, they had no excuse. So Israel, so Jonah, right, should have come back to Israel declaring, hey, look what just happened to the Assyrians, right? I went and preached the gospel essentially to them. They believed it and responded, and they should have been provoked to jealousy, just like Paul says in Romans 9, right? The, the Gentiles have been brought in to provoke Israel to jealousy. Israel should have been provoked to jealousy by the response of the Assyrians and turned to the Lord, but instead they did not.